Well, hello, friends. A special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We're in week two of our series, What is the Bible? And before we dig in to our content, I have to share with you a little a personal note. I took my family down to see the automobiles at DeVos Place yesterday, and it was cool. We saw a bunch of great stuff, but there was one moment, and I captured it on my iPhone, that I will forever remember my second kid and my third kid. Check this out. Oh... Isn't that just glorious? And the best part about it was that we're walking away and my eight-year-old looks at me and he goes, where was the flux capacitor? Because there was none. If you don't know what we're talking about, you have some homework, watch Back to the Future. Anyway, that was just for fun. Uh, We are in week two of a series called What is the Bible? Um, And as I mentioned last week, I believe that these conversations are some of the most significant we've ever had together. I mean, the Bible has shaped religious belief and practice for thousands of years, for countless people. Nonetheless, a lot of us have never taken the time to ask the question, what is the Bible? When we open it and begin to read it, what exactly are we reading? I mean, it really is a critical question uh, because of an observation I'll start with. It goes like this. Though the Bible looks like a book, like it was handed to you and it may have even, you know, it was bound and it had a table of contents and some maps at the back. It looks like a book but it doesn't exactly read like a book. And you know this uh, if you've ever tried to read it just randomly. You open to one place and you're reading one thing, you open up to another place and you're reading something, well, something very, very different. So the Bible isn't really a book. Scholars tell us it's a collection of books, actually 66 books written by around 40 authors over 1,500 years of time. They wrote from three continents and probably the most significant thing to know is they're real people in real places, in real times, in real life situations. And so the culture and the politics and the economics and the religion that surrounded the authors as they wrote impacted the way they articulated the story of God. And so what I want to do with our time today is pull back the camera and talk with you about the Bible as a whole. I want to show you something that you may have never seen before, um, and it will answer a question that you may have never had before, but I'm going to tell you what the answer is to the question that we're going to ask, and there we go. So the question goes like this. You know, when I read the Old Testament and I read the New Testament, and I actually had a friend say this to me recently, I'm reading the Old Testament, then I read the New Testament, and he's like, it's probably not fair to say this, but it almost doesn't seem like the same God. Like some of the stuff, the Old Testament God, he's like, who I know is the same God, says are sort of incompatible with some of the things that the New Testament God might say. And I said, well, well, what do you mean? And he looked back, he goes, I'm so glad you asked. I brought it on a piece of paper. So he whips out his piece of paper and he reads me this passage. He goes, okay. Um, Basically he said, like when you read this, I just want you to think, is this what Jesus would tell us to do? And and so I couldn't wait to see what he came up with. It's from Deuteronomy, which is in the Old Testament. This is Moses talking to the people as they're about to enter the land God promises to give them. Here's what Moses says. However, he says, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. In other words, God's given you this land, but somebody who's already living there. Here's what you're supposed to do. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. (laughs) Completely destroy them. And he's like, I just, it feels not very Jesus-y. Anyone want to agree with me on this? You just, just take care of it. If it's breathing, put it down. And then he says, there are these other passages in the Old Testament that talk about like, if your kid is rebellious, stone them, like throw rocks at them. He's like, I just don't feel like Jesus would want me to do that. He said, but I am having trouble with my wayward teenager. So let me know if that's okay. And I said, okay, well, yeah. Well, what am I supposed to do with that? There's this Old Testament thing going on. And then there's this 
New Testament thing. And what I shared with them is, is that, well, Christians have been noticing that tension for a very long time. And in fact, um, there was a church leader, a very famous church leader, um, named Marcion, and he lived uh, between 85 and 160 AD. So his early years would have overlapped with probably the disciple John, but he probably never met him. Uh, but he became a church leader, and around 144, he became convinced of and began to teach that the wrathful God of the Old Testament was a completely different God than the all-forgiving God of the New Testament. And he went as far as to create his own sort of collection of Bible books. He took parts of Luke's account of Jesus' life because he thought Luke did a really great job um, with that version of Jesus. And, and then he also took 10 of Paul's letters and sort of jettisoned the rest. But here's what's so interesting. He didn't include one word of the Old Testament. He's like, well, whatever happened to Marcion? Well, it didn't end well. He was declared a heretic and thrown out of the church around the year 200. But to this day, people, including my friend at Starbucks, still struggle when reading the Old Testament and trying to reconcile that with what Jesus revealed in the New Testament. So what I want to argue with our time today is that we need to get right what Marcion got wrong if we're going to answer the question, what is the Bible? And so to do that today... I want to make an observation and then with the rest of our time kind of unpack it for you. It's a bit of a different talk for us here at Keystone, but I really want you to understand what's going on sort of behind the scenes. So begin with this observation. The Bible is organized around three major covenants. And a covenant is an, is an agreement between two parties that sets the terms of the relationship. Like if it's going to go well between us, here's what you need to do. Here's what I need to do. That's a covenant. And to be fair, there are other covenants in the Bible, but there are three major covenants that I want to use to frame our time today. So without further ado, covenant number one um, is a covenant that was made around 2,000 years ago, uh, or sorry, 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years before the time of Jesus, between God and a man named Abram or Abraham. And if you're reading and don't know that they're the same guy, it can be a bit confusing, but this is the father Abraham that had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham, and I'm one of them, and so are you. Remember that song? That's the, that wasn't funny. That's the guy that we're talking about when we talk about Abraham. But around 2,000 years before the time of Jesus, God makes contact with a 99-year-old man named Abram who has never been able to have children and makes him a series of promises that are nothing short of revolutionary, especially considering this happened 2,000 years before the time of Jesus. So here's what God says to Abraham. He says, I will make you a great nation. And Abraham's probably thinking, that's fantastic. I have no kids and I'm old, but that sounds good. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. In other words, you know, 4,000 years from now in this place called Ada, Michigan, people are going to be talking about you. So mission accomplished there. And you will be a blessing. He says, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. So God's like, I'm going to do these things for you. And then this is the big one. This is the showstopper. And all people's on earth will be blessed through you. God says, I'm going to do something through your family, Abraham, that's going to change everything for everyone. Your family has been chosen, even though you don't technically have any offspring yet. Your family is going to be the one that something is going to happen on a global scale. Now, this, this was an absolutely stunning thought to Abraham, not just because they were old and childless, but because in the ancient world, you know, peoples didn't bless other peoples. 
That just didn't happen. If you said, what did nations think of the other nations? Well, the other nations around them were people they always wanted to conquer, plunder, and enslave. So the idea that Abraham would be blessed in order to be a blessing would have been absolutely inconceivable to Abraham. But God wants Abraham to know how serious he is and how this relationship is going to work. And so in the verses that carry on forward from the promises, we read something that to us is just bizarre. Um, so I want to read it to you and then I'm going to tell you what Abraham would have seen when this happened. So here's what God does next. So the Lord said to him, in other words, Abraham, I need you to know I'm serious. So here's what I need you to do. Bring me a heifer. I looked it up. It's a young goat or young cow. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram. There's an easy Super Bowl joke about goats and rams. I'm going to let it slide. Just that's, that's for those of you who are here and are fans of New England. Anyway, goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So you're like, okay, get some livestock. Raid the zoo. Abram brought all these to God cut them in two. And I love that God doesn't tell him to cut them in two. He just does. He's like, oh yeah, that's what we do. Cut them in two and arrange the halves opposite each other, which is gross. And if you're here with PETA, you're probably already offended. Okay. Let's, it goes on. Um, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. He's probably exhausted from cutting a cow in half. Just saying, right? So just imagine this with me. There are halves of animals that are separated and in between them, there is blood. And so Abraham falls asleep. And as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a sleep. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch, so two items, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, your friend that read the Bible and got confused. This is why I don't read the Bible, right? What in the world is going on here? Well, Abraham would have known exactly what is going on. And everyone in Abraham's world would have known because this activity was known as cutting a covenant or cutting a deal. That's where when we say we're cut a deal. That's where it starts. They actually used to cut things. And the two parties who were going to cut a deal would bring the animals, slaughter the animals, and walk the blood path. They would walk in between the halves of the animals as if to say, if I am not faithful to my end of this covenant with you, this deal, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Here's why this is so stunning. In Abraham's dream, he never walks the blood path. God walks the blood path twice. And it's as if God is saying to Abraham, whether you are unfaithful or I am unfaithful, I will pay with my blood. Of course, the challenge being God doesn't have blood, right? Hold on to that thought. For now, you should know that all God asked of Abram is that Abram trusted that what God had promised to him would actually happened, that his descendants would become a nation through whom God would bless the world. That's covenant number one. It was unilateral and it was unconditional. It was a one-way covenant that did not depend on a human being faithful to God. Okay, covenant number two uh, is cut between God and people 500 years later. Eventually, and we're going to skip a bunch of the story, Abram has some relatives who migrate to Egypt where they are fruitful and multiply in numbers until they become a nation-sized population. And Pharaoh, who's the ruler in Egypt, becomes threatened and responds by enslaving Abraham's descendants. 
And, and notice at this point in their history, the slaves in Egypt have heard the stories of the promise of Abraham, that they would be a nation which they are, that God would make Abraham famous, which he did, and that through Abraham, God would bless the world. And they're thinking, okay, all we do is make bricks. Endlessly making bricks in Egypt does not seem like a healthy path to changing the world. Like, it just, we're, what, are, what in the world are we going to do? But fortunately, this is not where the story ends. And, and this is the famous part of the Bible, right? God approaches a man named Moses and sends him to Pharaoh, the Egyptian leader, with a very memorable message immortalized by Charlton Heston and, you know, the Prince of Egypt, if you've seen the cartoon, right? He says, let my people go. And after a bit of highly creative arm twisting, Pharaoh lets the people go. And they leave Egypt, and four months later, we find them camping at the foot of Mount Sinai, watching as Moses, their leader, comes down from meeting with God with the Ten Commandments. And actually, the Ten Commandments, by the time the whole conversation is done, there were 613. But these were God's instructions for his people. Once again, God was introducing a covenant between himself and Abraham's descendants. The covenant with Abraham still stood, but there was a new chapter unfolding. It was a different sort of covenant than the one that had come before. Here's the language of the original covenant at Mount Sinai. It's Exodus 19. God says to the people, now if, and just notice the if, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you obey, then I will bless you. Now, note one thing before we move on. The you there, and if you're Southern or have spent any time in the South, you get this, okay? The you there is plural. So up North, we have simplified the language, but down South, you would read it, now if y'all obey me fully. So this was not a covenant between God and an individual. This was a covenant between God and a nation. And it was a conditional, bilateral covenant. Like the ner Bible nerds that I like to read that you probably don't, okay, they called this a bilateral suzerainty treaty. And in, ancient, in the ancient world, that was an agreement between two unequal parties that defined the terms and conditions of relationship. The suzerain was the one who was the greater power, and the suzerain got to de declare kind of the terms, and then the vassal or the lower party just got to agree with them. In our world, a parallel would be curfew. I, the parent who is on high, hath declared that you, the teenager, shall be home by 11, or will, will not go well with you in the land. You with me? That's kind of how this goes. And so uh, God basically says to the people, if you obey me fully, then I'll keep you safe. But, and this is key, the covenant also worked the other way. If Abraham's descendants did not keep up their end of the deal, as in obedience, God was in no, under no obligation to keep his. And the covenant, again, was with the nation, not individuals. So it's conceivable that you as an individual in the nation were obeying God fully in your life, or at least close to fully. Um, but the people who were in charge were not, and so you could still be punished as a part of the nation. So that was the opportunity presented to the people. And again, they've just been freed from slavery by the hand of God. Here's how they respond to God's offer. They said, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey, which sounds good until you realize that they didn't and they couldn't and we couldn't either. And to me, it gets really interesting when you start thinking about 
God knew they wouldn't, and God knew they couldn't. And if you said, well, how do you know that? You just read the rest of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament records this endless cycle of the people returning from, or returning to and turning from God. So a question that surfaces for me at this point is, okay, why this bilateral covenant? Why did God do an if-then covenant with people if he knew that they couldn't keep up their end of the deal? And here's what scholars tell us. God wanted them to understand something they could not understand any other way. He wanted them to realize that they couldn't fully escape sin by their own efforts. They were going to need to be rescued. And in order for someone to be rescued, they have to come to a point where they realize that they're incapable of saving themselves. And so this covenant at Sinai defined God's relationship with the nation of Israel for 1,500 years. And though um, the nation of Israel repeatedly broke the covenant, it's worth noting that God's promise to Abraham stood. He never abandoned the global purposes that he had in mind for the nation of Israel. That's covenant number two. That promise that one day God would bless the world through them in spite of their unfaithfulness. Now, for covenant number three, we need to fast forward to right around the year zero. And if you said to me, what was life like for the nation of Israel around the year zero? Um, they've come into the promised land. They've set up a society. But because of their repeated cycles of unfaithfulness, they continue to be occupied by foreign powers. And in the year zero, the Roman Empire was the global military superpower. And the Roman Empire was the one who was in control in Egypt or in, in uh, the promised land. Kind of like in Egypt, where the slaves would have said, God, how can you bless the world through us from a position of slavery? The first century Jews felt almost the same way. God, how can you bless the world through us if we're not even a self-governing people? So the people watched and waited and wondered if God had forgotten about them. But God's silence was not confirmation of his absence. 2,000 years after God's promise to Abraham, an angel, a messenger from God, is sent to a young Jewish carpenter by the name of Joseph, who's engaged to a girl named Mary, who is pregnant, and the circumstances around the pregnancy are a little fuzzy for Joseph at this moment, and here's what the angel tells Joseph. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. And here's, here's the part that really lean in. Because he will save his people from their sins. God has sent Jesus to save his people from their sins. In other words, he's going to rescue them. He's the rescuer and he's on the way. And the wait is over and God has not forgotten about his people and his promise to Abraham would be filled and fulfilled. And moreover, Jesus' salvation wasn't just limited to the nation of Israel. Jesus was the vehicle by which salvation would come to the world. All the nations on earth were on the verge of being blessed. And so Jesus came and Jesus taught and Jesus healed and Jesus calls disciples who learn this new way of being human. 
And then right near the end of his time on earth, Jesus has a final meal with his disciples. And it's one of my favorite scenes in the entire Bible because of so much that happened during this meal. It was called the Last Supper, the famous Last Supper. Fortunately, someone was there, took a picture for us. So that's good. And uh, you need to know this wasn't just any dinner. This was what the Jews called a Passover Seder. And it was part of their feast of Passover, which commemorated God rescuing his children, the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. They had a meal that was rich with symbolism. And so they were in Jerusalem, in the city where God had said, you know, come to the temple area, celebrate Passover in Jerusalem as close as you can to the place where they believed heaven and earth came together. And so they enjoy a meal together. And then this meal, uh, at the end of this meal, Jesus does something that would have absolutely shocked his first disciples. And we're so familiar with it, we don't even see it. But here's what Jesus says. After the supper, he took the cup. Uh, There were common cups of wine on the table. He picks up a cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And, and, and And the disciples would have went, time out, wait, 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 wait a new covenant, a new, a new arrangement between people and God, a new, sort of, a new sort of deal has been cut or is about to be cut, and somehow it's in your blood. But Jesus, I hate to point out the obvious, you're not bleeding. What new covenant in your blood? What in the world are you talking about? And, and I wonder if the disciples, when he, they heard the words new covenant, I wonder if any of them remembered back when they were kids in synagogue school and they were learning about the Old Testament prophets. And I wonder if any of them remembered something that the prophet Jeremiah had promised 600 years before Jesus came. Because 600 years before Jesus came, there was a prophecy given that a new covenant was on the way. Well, here's here's what it said. Jeremiah records, the days are coming, declares the Lord. So God said, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. He says, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Everybody remembers that one, right? Because they broke my covenant. To which you respond, yeah, they broke it over and over and over and over again. That's kind of the story of the Old Testament. But according to Jeremiah, there would be a new covenant that would be very different than the old covenant because it would not require full obedience on the part of nations or individuals. Somehow God would make a new covenant for every nation and every generation. The promise to Abraham would be fulfilled. This was the big one. This was the final one. This was the everlasting one. Moreover, tells us this. He says, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is stunning. Because if you said to an ancient Jewish person in the Old Covenant or in the Old Testament, how do we stay right with God? What do we do when we sin? They say, well, you offer an animal as a sacrifice. That's what you do. That's why there's an altar in the temple and the blood flows always from the temple in Jerusalem. But God says, no, I will forgive their wickedness. It's a mention of grace. It's a mention of mercy. It's a mention of grace and mercy Once and for all, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Like God's covenant with Abraham, this new covenant wasn't going to be contingent on humans' ability to obey God perfectly. Like the covenant with Abraham, this one was to be universal. This one was to be unconditional. God wouldn't require people to keep their promises to him. We can't anyway. 
Instead, he would keep his promises to us. And just like with Abram, just like with Abraham, all that was required for people back then and for people like you and me today is to believe or to trust that what God said is true is true. And we put our faith, our belief, our trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us to bring us peace with God. Unilateral, unconditional, and worldwide in scope. This inauguration of a new covenant in Jesus signaled the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram and the finale of the covenant that God had established with ancient Israel at Mount Sinai. And so you can imagine, um, I mean, this was a game changer. This, this changed everything and caused all sorts of interesting conversations and confusion in the early church. And how do we interact with the old covenant as people in the new covenant? We're going to talk about that next week. But what I want to do um, as we wrap is I want to show you how crystal clear the New Testament writers were that Jesus' covenant was something new. And in fact, not only new, it was better than what came before it. Uh, your New Testament contains a letter called Hebrews. And actually, if you look on your program, uh, there's a section of that letter that I would love you to interact with this week. Maybe read it, read it in a group, talk about it. Um, but it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, New Testament letter called Hebrews written to Jewish Christians. And here's what the author of Hebrews tells us. He says, but Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted through better promises. And again, he's writing this letter to these early Jewish Christians because they're trying to wrestle down what the implications of the new covenant are to the old. He continues. He says, For if that first covenant, the covenant at Sinai, had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second one. He's like, listen, you all know it didn't work. To which they'd respond, okay, that's fair, right? There'd be no need to look for a second one. He continues. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he, Jesus, has made the first one, just so we're clear, author of Hebrews says, lean in, just so we're clear, in speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. Obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. So what does this mean for you and for me and how we read our Bible? I think it's fascinating in implications, and hopefully I've sparked some conversation for you. But for me, the big idea puts it best. It goes like this. Um, when reading the Bible, it's imperative to know where you are in the story. It's imperative to know where you are in the story. Uh, because all of the Bible was given uh, to you, but not all the Bible was written for you. And it's an interesting difference when you start to consider that. The Bible tells one story of God rescuing the people he created, but it's a story told through a series of major covenants. And that's why the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament can seem at times to have very different personalities. Uh, we read some of the things God asked the people in ancient Israel to do, like stone their children if they're rebellious, or don't eat bacon, which we've talked about before already. That's kind of suspicious, right? And, and we think, I don't understand why God would ever do that. But God's goals were different for the people because he was in a different covenant with them. Different covenant led to different rules. Now, one of my favorite pastors, a guy named John Piper, um, and he's a prolific writer. He tackles this in a recent book called A Peculiar Glory, which is all about the Bible. If you're interested in reading it, it's a great book. Here's what Piper says. He says, to be sure, 
Many instructions and rules and religious practices and rituals from the Old Testament are no longer to be practiced. He says, but this is not because these practices and rules were wrong, but because they were temporary and were pointing forward to the day when Jesus Christ would fulfill them and thus end them. He says, the coming of Christ did not abolish them, but it did make them, and he pulls the language from Hebrews, obsolete. And friends, that is good news, not just for ancient Israel, but for the world. It's good news that not only changes how you read the Bible, it's good news that can change your life. Because because of the cross, we can know where we stand with God. And all he asks from us is to believe what he said was true. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the good news that turned the ancient world on its head. That God, through Abraham's line, has blessed the world and made a way for all of us to be at peace with him. Would you stand? And I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, this morning in this place, it just seems appropriate to thank you for preserving the text of the Bible for us. In many ways, historically speaking, that we can hold it in our hands is nothing short of miraculous. Thank you for preserving the accounts of the life of your son. Thank you for preserving the writings of the early church so that we might know how they wrestled with the implications of the cross and how we should wrestle with the implications of the cross. We thank you for the clarity and the insight that these authors had to help us unpack the beauty and the majesty of your son. Lord, we will forever be grateful for Jesus. We will forever be grateful for the cross and his blood shed that brought us peace with you. I pray that you give us faith, give us belief to trust that fully. And as we do, I pray that that truth would reframe our struggles in this life. It would reframe our worries in this life. For because of Jesus, we can know where we stand with you. Because of Jesus, we know that we are your children. We've been adopted into your family. And so we bless you. We celebrate you. We thank you. We love you. In the matchless name of your son, the savior of the world, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week for part three of What is the Bible?